know, it's always difficult to know exactly what to preach on at, at this particular time of year, to find something that will be relevant to the season, if possible, at least a little bit fresh, and above all, practically helpful. Finding something to fit all these different criteria is sometimes not an easy task. Now, I don't know if I've managed it this morning. You can judge that and maybe tell me later. But what I want to explore with you as a theme for this morning is how should I feel about Jesus? You know, as Christmas approaches, as we remember his arrival, as a believer, if you're a believer, what should you be feeling right now about Jesus? Well, I have to tell you, I can see from here how some of you are actually feeling about life in general at the moment, for I see glimpses of that slightly robotic stare that come from too much shopping, too much planning, and maybe too much parties already. I sympathize with you. More than that, I empathize you. Maybe not with the shopping and planning, let's be honest. But in a different way, Christmas can be a busy time for me. So as much today as at any time, I am preaching to myself as I share with you. Because you know, in a a strange kind of sad way, I've sometimes found, I don't know if it's the same for you, but I've sometimes found that it's in the days leading up to Christmas when I've felt spiritually low and even a bit distant from God. But you know, it shouldn't be like that. And I want to learn this and move on from this and with God's help go on to experience something better. So let's look now then at how we should feel, how we can feel when we get our focus right at Christmas. To help us to do that, I want to look at the example of Mary and at her reaction to the news of the first Christmas, to the announcement made to her of the arrival of the Messiah, that she was to be the mother of the Son of God. But before we look at Mary's emotional response to this, her feelings about this, Let's first, before we do that, look at something else. That is, before we look at Mary's feelings, let's just look at what her feelings were based on. And at what our feelings need to be based on too. If we're to be saved from our feelings leading us into the kind of distorted thinking and living as a result of that, that's become the norm in our world today. Not just in terms of the outlook on Christmas, but in general terms. Let's look then at the indispensable foundation for the Christian's feelings. Let's look at Mary's faith. For don't we see here a wonderful example of faith in Mary's calm acceptance, just previous to the reading we had of, of Gabriel's message. Despite the fact that what Gabriel shared with her was seen as actually being something totally unimaginable, for a Jew. I mean, a Greek or a Roman teenager at this time in history, with their many gods and with their myths and fables of relationships and different alliances between the gods and mankind, they could be expected to take this kind of thing in their stride. But not a Jewess like Mary. Not her. For you see, she'd been brought up to see God as all-powerful, as mighty and mysterious, in a sense, distant. For her, the thought of God being born of a woman, the thought of God being born of, of God actually being human flesh, this 
would be for her totally incomprehensible. And yet, here as this message comes to Mary from God, she is able to take hold of it, she's able to submit to it, she's able to believe it. And Mary did this, knowing that this message, that what God was to do would have real implications and would prove extremely costly for her. I mean, in verse 34, we read there, How will this be? Mary asked the angel, since I am still a virgin. Now you see here, Mary is expressing something of her amazement, her astonishment, what's being said to her, something of her sense of the sheer human impossibility of what's being suggested. But do you think that she wouldn't also know, that it wouldn't cross her mind, how others later would react to this? not had this same revelation. You know, I hardly think so. And then the reaction later of Joseph, a good and godly man that he was, who wanted to shame Mary as little as he possibly could, and yet still put her away, still get rid of her. Well, do we not see here? Do we not here catch something of the foretaste of the reaction of those who would never believe what Mary claimed of her baby? who would always laugh and mock and snigger behind her back. So you see, as Mary believed God's word to her that first Christmas, she showed faith. She showed incredible, remarkable faith. In precisely the same way, we too are called to have faith this Christmas. But we perhaps have extra obstacles even to overcome in in this very area simply because of the way that our culture seems to continually seek to attack and undermine faith. You know, we're told that to have a true biblical faith, to believe what the Bible says, is to be naive, is to be unsophisticated, maybe even a little bit simple. And then this, this attack, this kind of criticism is is given just that bit of extra bite when comments are made by those who seemingly, who claim to be within the church. Let's say a number of years ago, David Jenkins, the the one-time bishop of Durham, who who famously said that he didn't believe in the virgin birth, that he didn't believe in the three wise men, to be blunt, that he didn't believe in the Christmas story at all. Didn't believe that he sees these things, in his words, as a myth. Now, these kind of comments, although maybe, I don't know, our immediate reaction and response to them might be, a, well, might be that of laughter or anger or whatever, yet for many Christians, I think that comments like these have a kind of drip, drip effect. Yes, because the Christmas story is so incredible. It is. They cause nagging doubts just to eat away at the fabric of our faith. Now, that being the case, let's just try to deal briefly this morning with some of the the criticisms that are made of Christmas faith. In fact, let's deal with them all in a way by centering in on the one central criticism made. And that is the fact that this story is a myth. And here we, we actually need to begin by understanding that when a professional theologian says that a story is a myth, he doesn't mean that it's an out 
an out lie. Now, what he means is that this is a symbolic story that's designed to get across a real spiritual truth, but with no actual basis in fact, with no basis in history, in reality. So, for instance, the the Christmas story, it might be said, is designed to show us that God did something special in Jesus, that Jesus is special. But Jesus is God in the flesh. Many would say, no. And the virgin birth, they would say, certainly not. And as for the actual details of the story being accurate, the wise men and their gifts, the shepherds bringing their worship, the star in the sky, the the presence of the angels, etc. Well, it said, that's just ridiculous. That's preposterous. No, this story is just a myth. And the gospel writers, they intended it to be seen as a myth. Indeed, it's said by some that, that they would have been amazed that any except the most terribly stupid and naive should see this as fact. Well, the first thing I believe that has to be said to this in reply is that amazing though this story might be, yet the facts are that since the very earliest days of the church, the vast majority of believers have seen this story as fact, seen it as truth in every detail. And it's not only that, but it seems clear that the gospel writers intended that the church should see it in this way. Yes, that they saw themselves as retelling actual events rather than as inventing some kind of elaborate myth. I mean, take, for example, Luke. Luke, the writer of the gospel that this particular episode forms part of. Luke is known to be a historian. He's known to be a man with a feel for history, a man with a passion for history, and with a great desire, a compelling desire, to be historically accurate. And so many historians today, not just biblical historians, no, but out-and-out secular historians, this world's historians, if you like, among these men as well, Luke, because of his care for detail, particularly in the book of Acts, his other book, Luke is known as the greatest of all ancient historians. And he's never known once in his writing, in anything he tells, to be inaccurate. Well, this same Luke, at the beginning of his gospel, he assures us that he's carefully checked his resources, his sources, sorry, and that his account is accurate. Luke 1, 3 and 4, Therefore, he says, Since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, it seemed good also to me to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things that you've been taught. And then Luke goes on into all sorts of meticulous detail about the timing of Mary's miraculous pregnancy in relation to our cousins Elizabeth's miraculous pregnancy. And then finally, to top it all off, he fixes both these against a known fixed fact in the history of the ancient world. There in chapter 1 and 2. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. 
This was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria. So you see, there is no way that Luke thought that what he was writing was any kind of myth, any kind of spiritual theory story. No, as far as he was concerned, it was fact. It was hard fact. Now we could go into all sorts of different ins and outs here, but, but what it all boils down to is that the gospel writers were convinced, totally convinced, that what they were writing was true. And later on, many of them proved how much they believed it by being willing to die for it. But you don't do that for a myth. You don't do that for some airy-fairy principle that somebody's dreamed up. You only die for something that you believe in with all your heart. Now, do you think that the former Bishop of Durham would have died for what he believed in? Do you think he was so convinced of it that it meant so much to him? Well, you can't be sure, and who am I to judge? But I don't think so. For his faith wasn't the faith that's been tested and proved true through the fires of persecution over the centuries. It wasn't the faith that's been handed down to us by the fathers. No, it's the flabby pseudo-faith of an apathetic church that's lost its way, that's forgotten what truth and falsehood really is, that's forgotten what it really believes or should believe. Now, of course, it does take faith, and we won't try and hide that. It takes real faith to believe what the gospel says. To believe that God became a man and to believe all the different details that are part and that emerge from that story. There's a lot that we can find from other sources, other ancient documents and recorded history to back it all up. But in the end, it does take faith. It takes real faith, even a big faith, to believe the Christmas story. That, though, was the faith of Mary. And that is the faith that God continues to call his people to. Let's move on, though, to look at what emerged from this faith. Let's move on to look at Mary's feelings. Now, there are a number of different aspects of Mary's reaction to this earth-shaking experience that, that we could focus on. However, what stands out for me, most of all, as we think of Mary's feelings on that first Christmas day, is surely Mary's joy. Now, you know, this is a good time to talk about joy to talk about Christian joy. Because apart from the fact that many of us maybe feel a bit shattered today, most of us at the same time probably feel just about as happy now as we ever do at any time of the year. So today, yes, we feel as if God really loves us and we know that we love him. Today we already feel joyous and we're ready to rejoice in the Lord. But after not being in this past year, and there will be almost certainly in the coming year for many of us, those other times, those times when things are going wrong in our lives, 
Those times when our inclination, everything that is in us, is drawn maybe to feel that God's letting us down. That He doesn't really love us after all. Those times in our lives when because of what's going on in our lives, when we feel far from God, when we feel distant from God, and when we certainly do not feel like rejoicing in them. But what does that say about our joy? Even what does it say about us? Is that the way that things actually should be? Well, let's look again at Mary's example. And while there's a a thread of joy that runs through everything that Mary says here, and indeed everything that's actually said to her, yet I believe it's in verse 48 and verse 49 that we find there the foundation on which Mary's joy is based. There she says, From now on all generations will call me blessed, for the mighty one has done great things for me. Holy is his name. And do you see there? Mary's joy rests not on her circumstances, not on how life is going for her at a specific moment in time. Rather, her joy rests on who God is, the Mighty One. Holy is His name. And on what God has done. The Mighty One has done great things for me. But you see, that is the kind of joy that is an anchor in life. That's the kind of joy that sustains us through life, whatever life brings our way. The kind of joy that rests on who God is. The great, the mighty, the holy, the loving God. And on what God has done. The eternal life, the salvation, the new life that is won for us all through faith in Jesus Christ. You see, this is the kind of joy that's there when our circumstances are good, when life's going well, when humanly speaking we're as happy as we can be. But it's also the kind of joy that's there when that's not the case. When that's as far as possible from being the case. That's the joy that holds us up. The joy that carries us through. The trouble, I think, with too many of us though, is that we put the cart before the horse. We try to make the incidentals into the substance. For we make the basis of our joy not who God is, not what He has done, but rather it is our circumstances. It's what's going on in our little life right now. And in a world that is a spiritual battleground. In a world where God, though triumphant, is still involved in real, ongoing spiritual conflict with evil. That leads, when that's the way we're living, to a very up and down Christian experience. Because you see, as Christians, as the church, we're God's front line in this battle. And we are going to get hit. We are going to be hurt. And if we expect otherwise... If we expect in our life to always be protected, always have it easy, and if we base our joy upon that, well then we are going to be disappointed. And it should be no surprise if pretty often 
we're up and down and more often down than the other. So how should we feel at Christmas? Like Mary, we should be rejoicing. We should be joyous. And we should be. It's a good thing to be. But let's today make sure that our joy is centered and based on the right things. So let's enjoy Christmas and let's enjoy everything that goes along with it. Let's not despise the happy times, the family times that are part and parcel of it because they are part of God's gift to us. But at the same time, let's not base our lives and our joy upon them because they are shifting sand. These things come and go. Rather, let us today base our lives on that solid rock of who God is, of what he has done for us in Christ. Let's do that. Let's come to God now in prayer. Father, we want to thank you that our joy rests upon what you have done for us in Jesus Christ. It rests upon who you are that you are a loving and a faithful God. But we live now as men and women touched and affected by sin. We live in a sinful world where the powers of evil are evident and real and at work all around us. So we cannot expect life to be protected for us. We cannot expect our life to be easy or anything like it. Lord, may we find in you today the strength and the joy that we need to continue to live for you. And this we pray now in Jesus' name. Amen.